this this lesson is very lengthy. I obviously will not have time to finish it this morning, and I will choose not to be in a hurry. So if you want to hear the rest of it, you'll have to be back next Sunday. And uh, so uh, a good incentive. This is very, very needful, and you'll understand in a moment. Let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us today. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for your blessing. We're thankful for your, your interest in our lives. You love us. You care about us. But you're also interested in our lives, not just ours, but everyone around the world. We're thankful for that, that you took the time to inspire men to write the Word of God, to commit it to a project that took over a thousand years. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the Word of God and what it means in our life. And I pray that this material hits home today. I pray that we understand it, that we get our head around it, and that we, we will give heed to it. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. amen. It'll take me a few moments to get to the real heart of what I have come to talk to you about today. And, uh, and before I begin, I want to say just how much I love, appreciate, and respect um, uh, Brother Jason Cooper for his ministry in Next, uh, and Brother Ben and Brother Wheeler in the adult class. I hear you gentlemen applauded often, and thank you for your contribution to the lives of these amazing people in here today. I would like for all of you, if you would, to make an effort to read First and Second and Third John over the next week or two. They're very short books. You could read them in probably less than 30 minutes, all three. They're very short books. And if you have time this afternoon, go ahead and read the book of Psalms. It's meant to be a... a anyway. Um, but uh, first, second, third, John. Well, this material that I'm going to be teaching uh, today and next, next Sunday uh, will be out of those books, and we may do some other material as well. But they're short books. It won't take you but a few minutes to read it. The reason I'm asking you to read it is because of what what's, was happening in the church then is happening in modern-day church culture now. And I want to say, folks, it is imperative that you understand this material. It's imperative. I still believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And uh, the Bible even teaches that the Bible is the Word of God, and in it you can find life, and you can find light. You can find understanding, and you can find eternal life in the Word of God. And so if you'll read First and Second, Third John, you'll understand that it's very gripping, it's very compelling, and it merits our thought and consideration. Let me give you an example, and this is where I'll be coming from today. John wrote, it's the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, but he wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, Jesus, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar. That's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. The truth is not in him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not mincing words. That's kind of saying how it is, right? 
little feedback would be, you know. <clears throat> and then he said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother is not of God. I want to talk to you for a little while today and, and Lord willing next Sunday, the necessity of discernment. I want to talk to you folks about the necessity of discernment. You'll understand in just a moment. When one begins to read scriptures like the ones that we just read, it should strike every one of us at the very heart of our consecration and commitment that we profess to have in our relationship with Jesus. In reality, it becomes the acid test or the litmus test of whether one is demonstrating the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. If such an investment into the study of Scripture cannot help but alter one's behavior and attitude towards God, towards sin, and toward the world. So if one will allow such Scriptures to move them in a direction towards God, then no doubt, without any doubt, some amazing things will begin to happen in the life of that person, such as things like the desire for prayer, where you want to pray it's not an obligation it's not a duty you want to you look forward to it uh, it should give you a hunger to want to read and study the bible something i think is far too absent in most of our lives it should give you a passion for holiness a passion to want to be more like jesus it should cause us to want to give to God true worship every single day in our life. So one could sum up all of these spiritual qualities in burgeoning or increasing spiritual health and vitality. So just reading the book of 1 John, just 1 John, can help you grow in your relationship with God. Again, it's going to take me a moment. Y'all be patient. When one really begins to delve into the book of 1 John, just the first, first book of that series, there are some crucial things like discipleship and surrender and responsibility and fellowship and joy and obedience and love and truth and sonship and doctrine and sin and perseverance in our relationship with God. That's what you'll glean just by reading the book of 1 John. Very short epistle in the New Testament. Much of one's relationship with God falls into the mode of subtraction and separation, followed by addition and multiplication. I'm going to read that again. It's kind of wordy. Much of a person's relationship with God falls into the mode of subtraction and separation. When you come to meet God, you give up some things. There are some things taken away, if you will. Uh, you're separated from some things. This is what 1 John teaches. But it's followed by addition and multiplication. This principle, this foundational truth, is taught in the book of Genesis. Anybody knows a man named Abraham? He's the great example 
of this concept. There's also an incredible spiritual authority that comes when our hearts are drawn closer to the Lord and further separated from the world. In fact, the closer to the Lord I draw in prayer and in the Word of God, the less loopholes I find myself looking for. I don't study the Bible to see what I can get away with. I study the Bible to see how much more I can draw closer to God. So the Apostle John was probably in his 80s when he wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He was serving as a pastor in Ephesus and as a general overseer, kind of a superintendent slash presbyter of the other six churches that existed at the time throughout Asia Minor. John was also the younger brother of the Apostle James, who was the first pastor of the Apostolic Church in Jerusalem when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. John was zealous about the truth of the kingdom of God. Some would think that his passion would be detrimental to his communication of that truth. However, if John was going to play that role that Jesus had ordained him to do, it would have Uh, had to be marked with zeal and passion. You just can't represent Jesus without some level of excitement. You don't represent Jesus with a frown on your face and so on. He would have to endure much physical persecution, spiritual attack from the devil, and his passion for truth and relationship with God carried him successfully through all of these negative things that he experienced. So 1 John chapter 1 can be seen as the certainties of the Word of God, the certainties of the Word of life, the certainties of things that we will experience. John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the Word of life, he said. So very quickly, when you read 1 John, in the opening verse, John clearly indicates that he has literally heard the word. If you'll remember John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Do you remember that verse? So John is saying here in the opening verse, I've literally heard the word with a capital W. I've seen the word with a capital W. I've handled the word with a capital W. He knew Jesus. The Apostle Paul had an early tone, warning tone in his ministry. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, as Paul was leaving Ephesus, as he was leaving the Ephesian elders, he gave a prophetic warning that there would be savage wolves who would come in and attempt to deceive the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock or to all the church, over which the Holy Ghost Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, Paul said, that after my departing, grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves men shall arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples from them, or after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. 
And that's how I feel today. We need to be warned. We need to understand the necessity of discernment. You'll understand that better by and by in just a moment. Paul would later repeat this same warning in, in, in Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, and know this also, that in the last days, which I believe we're living now, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of them own selves. We're seeing that now. Lovers of them own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. These aren't sinner people he's talking about. Because the next verse explains who he's talking about. It's people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He says, from such you turn away. You don't go to their church. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sin, led away with divers' lust. Verse 7, here it is. Ever learning, ever learning. We're Bible studied to death. Ever learning. I make this statement oftentimes to our church, especially on Wednesday night. I'm not here to increase your knowledge. I'm here to give you something, some substance that you can use as a tool in the coming days and weeks and for the rest of your life if you choose to remember it and apply it. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What the scripture is actually saying, King James doesn't do a good, trans, a good job in translation. It actually says, ever learning, but never able to come to full discernment. You just don't reach a place where you can discern what's going on around you and what's good for your life and what's not good for your life. He went on to say, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, For the time will come when these people will not endure sound doctrine. We're living there, folks. We have folks right here in the Baton Rouge area that used to be truth teachers and truth preachers. They don't do that anymore. And we don't think it's that big of a deal anymore. I say we. I'm not including that number. I think it's horrible. They'll not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So finally you note in the writings of John, this time has arrived. They dealt with it then, and we're dealing with it now. I am amazed at the number of people I hear about continually that used to be strong, one God, Jesus' name, Holy Ghost, Y'all remember the machine gun song from way back in the days where you sing, I am a one God, Holy Ghost, tongue-talking, Holy Ghost, believer in the power and the liberated power. I can't remember all the words now. But you sing it faster and faster, and everybody gets the Holy Ghost for you over. <clears throat> it's a machine gun song, they called it. We'd wear our, our, our Sunday school kids. We could ever wear them down and get all that hyper energy. We'd just sing that and uh, that one and Father Abraham. 
Father Abraham had many sons. Right arm, Father Abraham had many sons. Left arm, right arm, turn around, sit down and shut up is how it is. <clears throat> Something like that. I don't think it ended with shut up, but it was close. It's what it meant. <clears throat> but what was happening in the church then is happening in the church now. The time has arrived. It's on us so far A simple approach, one notes that John is warning that these wolves are now manifested themselves in three ways. And this is what you need to be able to discern or to make full discernment or a full judgment. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, he talks about false prophets. Now, from my era of time, a false prophet was this guy from the Middle East with a long beard and he, he, he looked weird. And, and dress weird and all that kind of stuff. And he would utter all these kind of guttural noises out of his throat and, and claim to be this and that and whatever. And to us, that was a false prophet. You know, they sat around a campfire late at night and had a tent behind them and these strange writings. That might be partially true, but that's really not what John was talking about. And that's not what I'm talking about today either. A true prophet. A true prophet is one who speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, whose words are true and in alignment with the Word of God. That's a true prophet. A true prophet is not only validated by his words, but he's also validated by his lifestyle. He lives what he teaches and preaches. A false prophet, on the other hand, is one who operates under a false pretense as a mouthpiece of the Spirit of God, and time will render his words to be error, and he will be exposed. There are false prophets that live among us. They pastor churches. I'll have to be real careful here today, but I'm very passionate about this subject. Some of you have been to those churches, and it didn't resonate with you, and that's why you're here. We need to be able to discern what is truth and what is error. And it's not just based on what you've been taught. It's not the fact that you've known a certain thing for a long period of time that validates it. I believe there's people that have known things and believe things for a long period of time, and they're very sincere about it, but they're sincerely wrong. You have to go to the Bible and validate that your beliefs are true, not just based on what your mama said. The sad matter is that some souls will be deceived before they are even aware of the identity of the false prophet they're listening to. I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus. I'm trying to, I want to teach Grace Church that you need to have some understanding of the Bible and some understanding of the times you're living in. If you don't, you'll be swept away. This is going further than that, but y'all bear with me. In 2 John 7, he talked about deceivers. He talked about false prophets, and now he's talking about deceivers. A deceiver is much like the Judas who leads sheep into a stockyard to the butcher pens. Uh, Deceivers are are people kind of like the Herod that, that lived when Jesus was born. They, they don't mind killing babies. They don't mind destroying people. 
they'll do anything to promote their cause at, at, at any cost. They don't mind feeding you bad information, bad doctrine, bad philosophies, bad concepts, anything to derail you. I had a conversation with somebody about that this morning. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 8 talks about Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but people who are anti-Christ. The core of their teaching is that the divine manifestation of God in human flesh never existed. They will persuade you that Jesus is not real. So John's approach is very confrontational. John writes in somewhat of a uh, polemic or apologetic or defensive tone. Because of this approach, there are some very negative instructions that are given in this first epistle. <clears throat> the first indication from this aged apostle is that the ministry of the word, the ministry, the teaching and preaching of the Bible cannot always be positive, conciliatory, encouraging. It will not always be the name it and claim it or the happy clappy approach. It can't always be that way. And oftentimes, that's why church people love evangelists, because they're the happy clappies. But they don't like pastor too much, because kind of tell you how it is. There are some points of confrontation that must come with the perfecting of the church. It's biblical. It must come. One may ask why this particular approach is necessary to which the answer will be to provide wisdom to people. In the provision of wisdom, error will have to be brought to light and exposed so that one will not be led astray. John will be very direct in his confrontation of this error. Truth will always stand up in the face of error. Our age is no different from that of John, and we must be on guard against the error that attempts to gain a foothold in the lives of the unsuspecting and undiscerning church people. The most valuable thing that we have in life, the most valuable thing we have in life is divine truth. The most valuable thing you possess is the knowledge of how to get from here to heaven. Nothing is more valuable than that. So because our most valuable asset is truth, then one must understand that the greatest threat is anything that opposes this truth. I hope everybody's hearing me today. I'm very passionate about this study. The threat to truth must be dealt with as sharply as possible. The best defense against error is a profound emphasis placed on the truth of the Word of God. There are various ways and means by which error will come. It can come from a man, it can come from a group, or it can come from a system of belief. By the way, I just want to say in passing, we have an amazing crowd here today. Thank y'all so much for being here. Thank everybody for being here. Uh, I'm, we all do this all the time. It's pretty cool having all these people sitting in here like this. <clears throat> all faithful servants have been given the responsibility of guarding the truth. It's my job to guard the truth. The Bible said to buy the truth and sell it not. It has no price tag once you possess it. A servant of the Lord must always proclaim the truth. Doctrinal purity must, must be maintained with a passion by those who faithfully preach and teach the word of life. I know some preachers, I know them very well, that were one-time UPC preachers, apostolic preachers, 
They taught fervently and passionately the Acts 2.38 message. They gave up their holiness standards saying, we will never give up apostolic doctrine. And now today they'll baptize you any way you want to be baptized. You have to guard the truth. You say, Brother Murphy, is this going on in Grace Church? No, not that I know of. But prevention is a whole lot better than cure. The work of the devil continues to hold the same pattern as it did in the outset of Genesis 3. Eve was given over to doubt because of a twisting of the truth. Truth always involves doctrine. Worship is an overflow, an expression of doctrinal understanding. To fully involve the church in true worship, there is a precedent placed on true doctrine. I still get excited about the fact that I know there's one God and His name is Jesus. I still get excited. Let's give the Lord some praise for that. Aren't you glad you know that? The young church in the book of Acts had faced its first challenge doctrinally by the work of legalism. This was presented by the Judaizers who held to the components of the law of Moses. They believed that for salvation to fully be of benefit, that the rights of the Old Testament law needed to be included or mixed in with repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the work of the Holy Ghost. Much of Acts 15 deals with how the early church dealt with this particular dilemma. Furthermore, the book of Galatians written by Paul was a treatise that dealt with this error. So the second challenge the young church faced was the doctrinal challenge that came from Gnosticism. I'll get into that a little bit later. So let me begin to delve into this morning our Bible study. I have 10 minutes left. No, I don't. I got 18 minutes. Who's running that clock back there? Renita, is that you? You don't know how to tell time or something going on back there? <laughs> See, you're not the only one. Uh, let's talk about the necessity for discernment. John wants the readers of this epistle to be given a spiritual sense of discernment. I've never seen discernment so low in the church as I do today. A lack of discernment is what leads men far away from the truth of the Bible. A lack of judgment. A lack of just good common sense and judgment. Far too often spiritual discernment is relegated as to how one feels about certain things or issues. Sadly, Spiritual discernment operates in this way. If one feels good about it, then it is fully embraced. Or if one feels bad about the issue, then it must be jettisoned or discarded. However, spiritual discernment is so far from how you feel. Discernment is not a matter of feelings or some vague mystical gift. Discernment results from spiritual growth and understanding and the ability to discern. Discernment, result, uh, discernment is the path that leads to spiritual maturity. Folks, listen to these verses in this light, and I hope you can remember, make a note the next time you read it. Psalm 119, verse 66. 
The psalmist said, teach me good judgment or discernment. I had a, this on the one of the different screens, okay. Teach me good judgment or discernment and knowledge. Teach me how to discern what's right and wrong. Teach me to discern the path that I need to take. For I have believed thy commandments. In Proverbs chapter 2, the Bible said, So that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, or discernment, and lift up thine voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, and search for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand or discern the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 13, And the lips of him, the discerning, that hath understanding, wisdom is found. In Proverbs sixteen twenty one, The wise in heart shall be called prudent, or discerning. You know the difference. You don't cater to your feelings. You don't cater to your desires. You don't cater to just what you want. Your path is chosen by what you know the Word of God says. That's what dictates your path. I, I hear people, they, they come to the office, they'll text me, oh, Pastor, I just feel like that, you know, I need to do this thing. I've prayed about it. You probably did, but you prayed wanting God's endorsement, whether it was His will or not. So why is discernment at an all-time low in our generation that we're living right now? There are several answers to this question, and uh, I'm going to jump into this as quickly as I can. First of all, there's been the weakening of doctrinal clarity. We've reached a point where people really don't know what they believe. Our, our children that are growing up, and we're their parents, and we're their grandparents, they don't know the books of the Bible anymore. I was excited. Uh, I stepped into one of our Sunday school classes just several weeks ago, and the teacher was conducting a sword drill. Hadn't seen one of them things in forever. And I think it's amazing. They're taught not only what verses are in there, but where they are. Sister Murphy's gone, and I are, are planning to do a, a song when we can get around to it. I'm going to drag out my guitar, and we're going to do... Well, they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I thought it was a pretty good idea. We're going to make a little video of it and let them play it in our Sunday school classes and teach our kids the books of the Bible. Maybe we need to do that in here. Brother Wheeler, Brother Ben, from when you started your class, pastor on the screen singing the books of the Bible. Maybe you'll learn it. But there's a lack of doctrinal clarity. The reason for that is because we don't read and study the Word of God. And I want to say something to all you sweet folks that do the little... Bible app devotionals, those are sweet and they're nice and all that kind of stuff, but it's really not teaching you a whole lot. It kind of makes you feel better for the day. It's kind of like taking a Tylenol, but it's not Bible study. And they sure don't teach you doctrine. Could you persuade somebody tomorrow with chapter and verse on what you believe? Can you? If you can't, why? Can you talk to them about your career or your favorite hobby? I can talk to you about motorcycles. I don't know a lot about it, but I, I love talking about it. But I also love talking about the Bible. 
and I do read it on a regular basis, and I study it on a regular basis. It's not hard. It's just discipline. It's discipline. Just taking a little time. You need to understand what the Bible says. When doctrinal understanding declines, real discernment becomes very difficult at best. Biblical thinking is important. You run your thoughts through the basis and conduit of what is biblical, not what is cultural. Our, our thought processes are not based on what our neighbors are doing and our friends are doing and the people we work with are doing, and that's really cool, so we're going to do it too. That's not how we think. Brother Cunningham made the statement, and this is what affirmed this material right here. The apostolic movement has always been anti-cultural. It's always been anti-to-culture. You have to be if you're going to maintain doctrinal clarity. You can't go with the flow with culture and expect to be spiritual too. But that's what we're trying to do in the church. We're, we're, we're right at, we, we get as close to that line as we possibly can. That we want to be as much like the world as possible without denying our relationship with Jesus. But John said, if you run around saying I'm a Christian and you don't obey his commandments, you're a liar. I didn't say that. John said that. Biblical thinking is important. To think biblically, you must search the scriptures thoroughly and test everything against what the Bible says. If you're going to determine between truth and error, the Bible is the measuring stick. The Bible is the scale. If it's not biblical, if it's not biblical, then it must be an error. The custom in our day is to call anyone who demands doctrinal clarity a Pharisee. And I've heard that. I've been called legalistic. I've been called liberal. I've been called everything. Um, whatever. Uh, but I still stand tall for one God, our apostolic doctrine, Acts 2.38, and holiness living. I still stand tall for that. And I'm not afraid to teach and preach it. And... I'm considered legalistic because of it, but I consider myself to be biblical. I like to teach the Bible. If I didn't teach the Bible, I, I wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be worth it. <clears throat> to love the truth is a far cry from legalism. So one much must plunge deeply into Scripture to gain an understanding of how we are to live. Uh, I'm going to probably have to conclude on this point. The clock's not a friend. So the first symptom of a lack of discernment in, in, in all churches today, not just Grace Church, but pretty much all churches, is a weakening of doctrinal clarity. You don't fuss and cuss with people you work with too much over how you're baptized. And it's okay if you have the Holy Ghost or don't have the Holy Ghost. This is where we're getting weaker and weaker in doctrine. Don't forget, folks, I don't care what culture says, the Bible has never changed. It has not changed. And people ask me occasionally, what do you have to do to be saved? And I give them my answer. Sometimes they agree with it, sometimes they don't. But that doesn't make me not want to teach what the Bible says. The Bible is still the one that is truth. The second thing, is, and here's where we need discernment, is a disparaging of strong convictions. We're too easily swayed to do things 
that are converse or adverse to Scripture. And we don't realize that it's, it's the frog in the kettle. It's the frog in the skillet. You know, you turn the water up and it heats up, heats up, heats up. And he burns up, not really realizing that he's burning up. Our day demands that anyone who has strong convictions hold them with as much slack as possible. In other words, you need to put your convictions on the longest leash possible because you just don't know when you may have to compromise. And, and, and you, know, you know, my job is telling me that I've got to go to this party and I'm going to be expected to behave in a certain way. I have been ridiculed at a company I worked for. The last company I worked for before we went into ministry had a big company picnic, and I found out later the owner of the company demanded everyone be there. It was not an option. They did it to set me up. It was a small firm. They knew I was kind of a religious guy, and I was so tormented back then, needing to go in ministry, didn't know how. It's a long story and all that kind of stuff. But I remember going to the ice chest to get Sister Murph and I a cold drink. She'll remember it. And they began to badger me. Go ahead and get that beer. Go ahead and get that beer out of there, man. Go ahead. Let's see you drink a beer. Let's see. I've been there and done that. I didn't get the beer. You can laugh at me all you want. But I'll tell you what did happen. One of the biggest people persecuting me at that time was a woman in her early 40s, a very sensual, a very sexual woman. Uh, The boss, the guy that owned the company deliberately put us in an office together. I had to share an office with her every day. And standing up to her stuff all day long, every day, I hated my job. And both of us were laid off on the same day. The boss decided I'm getting rid of the best, I'm getting rid of the worst is all I could figure. (laughs) Get rid of both of them. They're both driving me insane from two completely ends of the spectrum one convicts me and the other one tempts me (laughs) literally literally she did file a lawsuit on him for sexual harassment (laughs) anyway we were laid off the same day we were packing our box at the end of the day she was packing her little box i was packing mine with all of our personal belongings she looked at me and she said tell me what makes you tick tell me what do you have what makes you like you are? Why don't you do all the things that, that we've tried to get you to do? She told me. She called me by name. She said, Glenn, I've tried everything I know to do to break you down. She said, what is it? And big tears, just those dark black streams of mascara started running through all the makeup and all that stuff. And she said, what is it that you have? I've never been a person, I've tried, let me rephrase that, I've tried not to ever be a person who carries my personal convictions with as much slack as I can. I hold them dear to my heart. And if there's people here today that you have the truth, but you're willing to sell it for a pretty cheap price so you can have fun this coming Saturday night, this coming Friday night you don't understand what you're susceptible to this is where we need the, to have discernment is a necessity and when I say discernment I'm not talking about discerning someone who's devil possessed that's kind of where this word went in my 
back in my day when I was a younger person, if you had the spirit of discernment, you could tell when someone had a, the demon of lust and the demon of alcohol and the demon of this and the demon of that or whatever. It's a part of it. There was a person visited here not long after we bought this building that was a part of a satanic occult. And they were looking at our missions certificate people over here right, right outside the restrooms. When I walked by this person, I stopped dead in my tracks like I ran into a wall. And I found out who they were here with. And I went to that person later who brought them. And I said, what was up with that person? When I walked by that person, something just slapped me in the head. I literally stopped. I was walking past this person right here. And I literally stopped and turned around and I stared. They didn't see me. Their back was to me. And I stared at that person like, what happened that you just stopped me dead in my tracks? And the person told me they belong to a satanic occult. And they're here where my husband and I are trying to get them out of it. To my knowledge, that was never successful. That's a part of discernment. But there's another part of discernment that says, when the devil is a long ways away right now and he keeps inching closer and just gets a little closer and a little closer, by the time he's sitting in your lap, you need to be discerning that right about now. And you need to understand that based on what you know about the Bible, we're not going to fall for this today. We're not going to drink that beer that I was tempted to drink. And we're not going to do those things. Our family, our marriage as parents, we're going to build a wall around our house. And there are some things that we're going to keep in our house. And there are some things we're going to keep out of our house with that wall. This is what I'm talking about with discernment. There is a lack of personal conviction. I have a brother that has a personal conviction. He will not wear cufflinks or a tie tack or a tie clasp, he feels like it's over the top for him. He don't impose it on anyone else. But that's his personal conviction along that line. Do you have any? There was a lady that, uh, Sister Elmina Parker, uh, she wouldn't drink anything with caffeine except Dr. Pepper. <laughs> because she said Dr. Pepper had prune juice in it and it was healthy. We can find a loophole, can't we? <laughs> what are your personal convictions? Do you have any? When your kids come and ask you for something and you say no, and they say why, you answer like my dad used to answer me, because I said so. Do you have any? I want to conclude with this. Uh, and, and, and I'm not nearly done. I'm just now kind of, kind of getting to where I want to teach. <clears throat> when I look at people who once believed the truth, who was once truth-preaching people, and they've compromised. They, they don't do holding the standards anymore. Now, they don't do doctrine anymore. One of our former UPC pastors asked me one time, he said, now, now you be honest with me and you shoot straight with me. Do you really believe people have to speak in other tongues when they receive the Holy Ghost? I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. It's not that I didn't know the answer, but where's this coming from, man? What happened to you? 
How do you feel? How, you've preached this for years as an evangelist. You've preached and you've prayed people through the Holy Ghost. You've seen it happen. You've handled the word. You've heard the word. You've witnessed the word. And now all of a sudden you're denying ex its existence. How does this happen? How does it happen? Well, I've come to this conclusion or, or this observation. With people who do this, and this is what I want to conclude with right now. After a while, I want to ask, what is a sin to you? So if you had a person in your church that, that as pastor, yet knew that someone in your church did da-da-da-da-da, it was going to steer them in a very bad direction, it was going to hurt their family and whatever, very sinful. I'm not talking about being a little nitpicky judgmental stuff, but something very sin sinful. What would that be? I've come to this conclusion, and I'll, I'm going to offend a lot of people with this presentation. But I've wondered, okay, let me use Steve Bunch, for example. We're in this arena where we don't really believe anything's biblical anymore. And um, he goes out last night, and he robbed a bank, and he's in jail this morning is that a sin really i mean is that really that big of a deal the banks have lots of money and they're backed up by the government i mean it, now come on pastor you know is stealing really a sin okay well let's take it a step further well maybe it's not that big of a deal you know he'll get a good attorney and you know you can pay enough and you'll get off and whatever okay so he went out last night and killed somebody is that a sin well, let's talk. Who was it? And what'd they do? This is the thinking. It hasn't led this far, as far as I know. But that's the path that it's on. I do know this. In some Christian circles, it's okay to drink. So if you have a former, an alcoholic come to your church that's addicted to alcohol and you want to recommend some fellowship, just go to our beer drinking class. That's not a joke. And some of you know what I'm saying is true. And if you want your little girls to dress modest, we have a class over here that teaches a certain thing that they can't dress modest if they're going to do that certain thing. Okay, I still like to believe that robbing banks and killing people is still a sin. But the point is, is when you set your sails in that direction where the Bible isn't really real anymore and it really doesn't mean what it says anymore, that's the direction you're headed. You don't believe me? Why has Christian America endorsed abortion? It's not adult people, but it's still killing people. That's where we're headed. Folks, we have to discern where we're living. How does this apply to you personally? It's what you allow in your home, what you allow in your marriage, what you allow your kids to do. You have to be discerning. And you don't give your kids this horrible violent game to play on their your smartphone because they're getting on your nerves you have to be more discerning than that 
you're poisoning them. You don't stay home from church because you don't feel like it, because you don't feel like coming, and you're too tired because you're teaching your kids that that's okay. I heard just this week another affirmation of this Bible study, and i got to quit. Someone admitted, have to be real careful. The problem when you grow up where you pastor, you can't talk about nobody because everybody knows them. But some folks have been out of church for a space of time. Some things have happened. They've gone back to church and admitted. They've admitted. But we've lost our kids, and we can't get them back. Next, people that have small kids at home, be careful what you do because you're teaching your kids. They won't not only do that, they'll do worse than that. Sin don't gradually improve in people's lives. Sin increases and takes people down further and further and further. You need to be discerning. So don't be well. If you're not in church half the time, don't bemoan the idea when your kids are grown that they don't come. Somebody stood out in the lobby not too long ago and tears streaming down their face. Pastor, how'd I get my kids back? You should have thought about that a long time ago before you started acting like an idiot. We have to be discerning, all right? It's going to be real interesting to see how many of you folks are back next Sunday. I can tell you that now that you see what this is about. I'm trying to help somebody here today. I'm trying to help you here today. God bless you. Great class. Great, great class. Let's get ready for 11 o'clock service. God bless you folks. Thank you very much.